You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Toonstar, an animation tech startup that produces snackable, interactive content for mobile audiences. To learn more, visit Toonstar.com or download the Toonstar app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Bill Carmody, CEO of TradePoint, as well as a frequent speaker, author, and leadership coach. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm glad we get to do this. So I wanted to start off by talking about how you began your career in the media business. Absolutely. So I started in 1994, uh, building the very first commercial websites for AT&T, MasterCard, CBS, and Coors Brewing Company. And uh, that was a lot of fun back in almost 25 years ago. What kind of inspired you to become an entrepreneur and uh, get involved in so many agencies at an early stage? So what really, after having built those uh, first websites, I got an opportunity to work at Ogilvy & Mather. So I started at Moda Media as their 34th hire. Then I went to Ogilvy and I really enjoyed the agency world, but I realized that there was more that I could actually do and offer if I had a little bit more control. So the entrepreneurial spirit really came from an opportunity to try to build out more uh, than I felt that I could do in the context of other agencies that I was working for. No harm, no foul. Great agencies. Love working with them. I just wanted to go bigger, deeper, faster. And so that's when I started Seismicom with two business partners. And then uh, about you know uh, 10 years ago, started TradePoint. So it's been a fabulous journey. I really enjoy being able to work directly with clients and build out uh, teams and, and organizations. And it's been a, a fabulous journey. So take us back to the early days of Seismicom. This was around you know, 2000. Mm -hmm. What were some of the biggest challenges as a first-time entrepreneur? That's a great question. I think one of the things that uh, any entrepreneur faces is that minimum viable product, right? What is it that you're selling? And what I think was really challenging at that time in 2000, uh, we had just experienced the dot-com bust, right? So what a great time to start a business in 2000 after everything sort of went belly up. <laughs> so, but I will tell you that it's in those times of, of uh, uncertainty that great businesses can be built because essentially if you can make it through a really terrible winter, you know, the spring is around the corner and you can really blossom. And so we had, we had, for, we were fortunate enough to work with some key clients, including America Online back in, the, in their heyday, uh, as well as Microsoft launching, uh, their ultimate TV product, which is their third largest uh, launch that year behind Xbox and, um, and, uh, their, their operating system. And so essentially, uh, what was fabulous about that time was to sort of understand that, you know, we were really having to create what is this next vision of the future look like? And, you know, with all this question around what's the value of digital technology, we really had to build certainty back where there was none. You know, there was tremendous, I mean, if you remember pets.com and a lot of these, you know, web van, there were just so many billions of dollars that had been invested into uh, digital, the digital economy. And then with everything sort of falling apart, there was a reluctance to continue to invest in those areas because a lot of people were concerned that there just wasn't a there there. Meanwhile, Amazon is is on a tear and you know you, you know what's what's really happened since then. So we really had to, had to sort of go in and approach our clients as a means to sort of help them understand what's possible and why they still mattered despite all of the setbacks from a lot of the dot com era. 
So I'm curious, you know, when you're thinking about starting an agency, right, and, and you'd been in a number of them prior to, to launching your own, mm-hmm. how do you differentiate? In a services business, what are the ways in which you set yourself apart as you're thinking about building out that MVP version of the agency? I love that question, James. So what, really what it comes down to for me is that there, there, when last I looked, there are 6,500 independent agencies in the United States. And so that's just a ton. And so businesses are looking at them. And oftentimes, one of the biggest challenges is they are perceived as interchangeable parts, which is why procurement will try to push down hourly rates, retainer fees, uh, everything will be coming up to request for proposals. And those RFPs are looking at, you know, 6,500 agencies and trying to whittle it down to three to five that they're going to actually do business with and sort of figure out what to do there. So one of the biggest things we learned early on was, you know, to be become a specialist. I think one of the challenges of today's agencies is that with outsourcing and leverage across, you know, uh, the India and and any type of even onshoring, you know, specifically with Fiverr and, and lots of platforms that are out there, you know, we can we can do anything. And that's a that's both a blessing and a curse. And it's a curse because when you are everything to everyone, you're no one to no one. So what you really want to think about is what is the special thing you can deliver better than anyone else? It's the fallacy for entrepreneurs to try to cast a wide net. And instead, what we want to do is narrow the focus, really focus on where are the, what's the audience you can serve the greatest. So what's your minimal viable audience as opposed to minimal viable product, which is to say how many people would I need to have hire me in order to create a, a scalable agency? And then once you've sort of thought that through, you could really get into what is the specific dominance that you can play in your industry, in your field, based on your own level of expertise. And so you've you applied that at Seismicom, and then what was the the evolution and what was the difference in launching TradePoint? Sure. Back in, with Seismicom, it was really an awesome opportunity to work with Fortune 100 companies. Um, you know, some of our big clients were AT&T, as well as Microsoft and AOL. And then we had a whole series of other consumer packaged goods companies like Dole. And what was fabulous about those brands is that, you know, we were an integrated portion of their larger marketing plans. And so we would focus on the channel marketing areas. And what I found was, is that, you know, there was a lot of tried and true marketing tactics that were sort of bubbling up each time we were doing this work. So when I started TradePoint, I started thinking about challenger brands. I started thinking about what were some of the brands that were the Avises of the world that we try harder, right? And the reason that I was really attracted to challenger brands was because it really, they, they tended to be a lot more open to doing things differently. They weren't looking for the tried and true. They were trying to figure out what kind of innovation could they bring into their businesses? How could they grow? their market share. And especially even if it was a, a tertiary you know, brand in the category, it was really a matter of like, we don't have a huge amount of money, but for the money we do have, we need to see a, an outsized return. And so that really got us creatively thinking about the kinds of things we could do. And that pushed us into some new directions, which is why we did a lot of early pioneering in social media around the ROI of social. There was a lot of questions about that when Facebook really came on the scene and there was a lot more, you know, social media options with Twitter and people were asking, well, you know, can we make money with any of this thing? And so we actually published a white paper called the ROI of social media. And the reason we did that was because we realized that most of the industry was measuring the wrong things. They were measuring clicks and likes and they were measuring, you know, comments and shares instead of sort of working backwards from the cash register. And so what we did is for a lot of the clients we were working with, we sort of worked backwards to say, what was the transaction they were trying to lean toward? And then how do we work backwards? 
So give us some examples of that. How was that successful? It seems like it'd be very difficult to measure the, you know, what moved the needle from a purchase or an action perspective uh, and tie that back to the social media activity. What we did, that's a great question. What we did was we started looking at, uh, so Trend Micro, for example, was doing a lot of uh, internet security software at the time, and we were trying to help support them in terms of their growth. And so we did some interesting things. We were being asked by the clients to do some viral videos that would sort of help get their brand out there. And to me, that was always a cringe moment when someone say, hey, make my video go viral. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, well, there's lots of ways to, at least back in that time, there was lots of ways to manufacture viral videos. You know, you could buy views and all that kind of stuff. But we said, you know, even if we had a, a million views of a video, which we did, we got some, some really large numbers. What does that matter? You know, it's other than an ego push for a chief marketing officer, it really didn't see a lot of value coming out of that other than just, hey, we got this great big brand umbrella. So what we did instead is we said, well, what are some of the internet celebrities at the time? And we found some um, some YouTube bloggers that are very early on. And what we realized was most of them at that time weren't taking on sponsorship. So we approached a few of them and we said, look, you know, we have this client. They want to they want to basically promote their software. But we really want to do is we really want to help them actually support the purchase behavior. And so we want to give some exclusive offers to you. Yes, we'll pay you as a, as a influencer and, and sort of put together some campaigns. But really what we want to track and measure is the number of people who actually download the 30-day free trial. And then, you know, we want to have bonus compensation. So not just a sponsorship, but actually, you know, based on the number of downloads we get, we're all aligned because the more we receive in terms of those downloads, we know what those conversion rates are afterwards and we'll just follow that process. So we did some early work there by both leveraging influencers and connecting it back to the sales process. Now, that one's a little easier because it's completely online, right? So when you can track and measure everything from a viral video view to a download to a conversion of a sale, it's nice and clean. Where it gets messy is when you then connect that back to physical retail. And so really when we were pushing ourselves even further was now how do we track and measure in-store purchase behavior? And so that's when we started working with Nielsen Catalina Solutions to tie it back to the loyalty cards. And so we would then do campaigns where we would track and measure the effectiveness in store by connecting a content piece directly to a loyalty card. And we do that on the back end by looking at, uh, you know, the, the profile information of the people who were, you know, in uh, working with our content and then seeing what kind of matches we could make. And it wasn't perfect, but we had a really good idea based on those people that were hitting the influencer content to those who were actually making purchase decisions using the shopper loyalty cards. And so that became more of a way for us to focus on how do we really measure the impact of what we're doing both online and offline and be effective in it. Very cool. And how were the results? Did you find that social media, and particularly the influencer marketing, was driving purchases for these brands? crushed it, crushed it, crushed it, crushed it. I mean, what we found was, is it was 11 times more effective. Wow. So for example, we would do, you know, control and test programs where we do, okay, let's just do a banner ad campaign. And then let's look at your best banner ad campaign you've ever had. And now let's compare that best banner ad campaign you've ever had to influencer content. And we were doing minimum five times better and up to 11 times better in terms of purchase and return on investment. And a lot of that was based on the way that the influencer content works. And even to this day, 
you know, this funny thing happens when you place an ad with Google or Facebook and then you stop paying for it, the ad goes down, right? But when you invest in influencer content, typically that influencer content's up for a very long time past when you've paid for the media. And so you have a long tail of continuous sales. So, you know, you're getting additional bumps and spikes well after the campaign has ended. So that was one of the reasons why I was a huge advocate of influencer marketing because it really showed the power of how this content could live on and actually continue to drive sales long after the actual campaign itself was over. So you mentioned, you know, working with challenger brands and others that were maybe a bit more open to the idea of experimenting in some of these new areas. What was it like trying to convince a brand of the power of social and particularly with influencer marketing? Did you find that they were pretty receptive to it or or what does that education process look like? Yeah, it's a great question. What we found was that when it comes to anything that's not quote unquote tried and true, there was always this sort of small budget. And this is true of most consumer packaged goods companies and large Fortune 100 companies. There's a specific designated marketing budget for tried and true tactics. This is what they've done last year and the 10 years before that and 10 years before that. So there's this sort of momentum that they have. But usually there's between 10 and 20% of this sort of net new, which some will refer to as a slush fund. Others will talk about R&D and, and marketing. And so there's lots of ways that it's couched. But generally, there's a small percentage of the overall media spend that they're willing to put against things that are not proven. They're not risking the entire wad of their, their marketing budget, but they're just taking a small sliver and seeing you know, what kind of effectiveness they have. So what we found was we'd have to go in there with that understanding that you know it's always going to start off as a pilot program. And so taking that mentality, we didn't even try to fight for the bigger, bigger dollars or bigger budgets. We just come in and say, look, give us $50,000. Let us show you what we can do with 50 grand. And then once we've continued to do a return on investment, then we can sort of scale it up. And that's typically what would happen. We go in with a project fee, we do a small project, and we'd show what the return on investment was from that first project. And then that would give us momentum to go back and get additional increased budgets. Okay, now now what can you do with this much? How can you do with this much? And so as they increase the budget, it was always uh, the onus was on us to continue to show what that return was looking like year over year, quarter over quarter. And, and when you think about influencer as a spend, right, there's a lot of different ways that you can, you can structure a campaign. You could leverage micro-influencers. You could work with bigger talent, digital celebrities, uh, you know, look at doing full-scale branded content integrations. What were your recommendations? What were the types of influencer campaigns that you worked on with brands? One of the things that we were concerned about at the celebrity level was that, you know, does that celebrity cachet actually transfer over to a product purchase? And what we were finding was the answer was not always. In fact, most of the time we were we were sort of there's a gap. You know, there's great in terms of the celebrity appeal, certainly the consumers that are really into that particular celebrity, there's that sort of rub off value, if you will, of the brand. But that's more of a brand campaign. If we're trying to actually do some sort of purchase behavior or show the return on investment, we really wanted to focus on things that we're going to move the needle. So micro-influencers were a lot more appealing from the very sense that micro-influencers tended to be ones that had a smaller audience that was extremely loyal. And so what we would look at was, hey, even if you didn't have a huge amount of reach, you know, if you had sort of a critical mass and we knew that when, the, when you were sending out your offers and your content, that that would actually move the needle and drive more purchase behavior, we sort of optimized more on the micro-influencer side and specifically people who had good, strong followings and and high levels of engagement. Can you share some benchmarks about engagement rates or critical mass of audience for uh, some of those micro-influencers? 
Sure. I mean, for us, what we'd find is as little as 10,000 engaged followers was enough to move the needle. So I think what that, what happened is when you know, we, we started off doing influencer campaigns, you know, the, the very first program we did with uh, Trend Micro, you know, we had a YouTube blogger that had a half a million followers, which were highly engaged. And so that was what our benchmark was at the time. We thought, well, that's kind of what we need. We need half a million or more. And what we found is as we scaled up to, you know, influencers with millions of followers, you know, it really did necessarily translate to engagement rates. So instead, what we're saying, okay, well, what percentage of your audience are actually highly engaged? And, you know, if you got at least 20 to 30% of the audience highly engaged, you could actually do the formulas and math of saying, okay, well, if we if we put something out, even with 10,000 people, you know, here's the number of people that are going to participate. And then based on those engagement rates, how does that actually translate to sales? So we could start to model some of that and decide for ourselves up front, whether we thought that these engagement rates and and audience bases were sufficient enough to produce the kind of sales result we were looking for in the campaign. When you think about influencer, social, even video as a, a bigger category, what does the modern marketing mix look like? If you were making a recommendation for a brand, and of course, this is going to differ on a case-by-case basis, but as you think about putting together the big picture of a marketing mix today, what do you recommend to brand marketers? Coming out next month is uh, Seth Godin's This Is Marketing in November, just a couple weeks away. And what's fabulous about that book, then I highly recommend it, is that he talks about this idea of your minimal viable audience as it pertains to driving sales. And so what's interesting about the the concept there was, you know, you're trying to encourage volunteers, not victims. And what that comes from is back in the, the, the late 90s, he, he wrote Permission Marketing. I think it was published in 1999. I was a huge fan of, of that book early on and, and um, started connecting with Seth Godin on the speaker circuit. And so he and I got to know each other and you know got friendly and whatnot. So we had a lot of great conversations. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about his perspective was, you know, since the 1950s, we've had interruption marketing, right? Interruption marketing is this idea of Tide saying in 1950, we have the best soap, so go buy our soap and people would because they didn't have any understanding of, you know, this was, it's show upon television, it's the best brand, so we want the best for our family, so we'll pick it up. So now what's happening is, is that, you know, that interruption marketing has, is, people have filters for, you know, I, I, I don't watch television without having a DVR, specifically TiVo for me, I'm skipping all the ads right off television, so I'm not really watching ads that way. In fact, more cord cutters are going to Netflix, right? So it's, it's you know, you don't even have ads at this point. So you think about that from the perspective of, well, consumers have built filters to filter out unwanted messages. And so that becomes part of this uh, this cat and mouse game. You know, the way YouTube sort of deals with that is they they force you to watch, you know, ads for a certain number of seconds, three, five, 10, 15, whatever, before you can actually get to the content you actually want. So what that tells me and why I'm sort of a long way getting to, the, to your answer is really what it comes down to is what is the value that your marketing is delivering? And the filter that Seth Godin asks in his latest book, which I love, is would anyone care if you went away tomorrow? And for most marketers, the answer is no. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I didn't see that ad, I'm not feeling like I've lost something in my life, right? Because it's interruption-based advertising. Now, the flip side of that is there are a number of examples where the answer is yes. When I do talk about content marketing, I specifically use an example of river pools and spas. And if you're familiar with that example, you know, in 2008, during the housing market crisis, there was nobody who was looking to do an in-ground pool, right? Because if your house was in foreclosure, why would you install an in-ground pool? So these guys were hurting. So they actually went out and they wrote 
a ton of blog posts, 300 to be exact. And so here's my question. I ask this to every audience, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, James, but if I were to post 300 blog posts about an in-ground pool, what number of blog posts do you think people would read before calling me to talk about it? What do you think? I would think people wouldn't read that much of the blog post to begin with. Right. So just give me a number, just a guess. Sure. Uh, three. Yeah. So at most of my conferences, when I tell this story, the answer varies between three, like you just said, to 15. The actual number was 100. And that blew their mind. And I share that with you because, you know, we're going to talk about video in a second. But the reason I talk about this content piece was, if you think about it, if you're going to invest somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000 for an in-ground pool, and you've never done anything like that before, you're actually having insatiable demand for that content. You're looking at sort of what's the difference between fiberglass and cement? What's the total cost of ownership? I mean, there's so many questions that show up. And as you sort of become smarter, you have more questions. Well, guess what? You know, if someone reads 100 blog posts before for calling you, they're pretty savvy. Like they've actually, they know we can speak the same language. They were finding that they could actually do higher levels of conversion because these people were essentially pre-selling themselves. And so what we find out here is that there's a ton of crap content, right? Really bad content. It's all over the internet. But then you have some, some standout examples where people have actually taken the time to add something of real value. In this next generation, if you think about what is marketing today, you know, Seth Godin says it really great. You know, how do you create volunteers, not victims? Volunteers are people who are supportive of your content because they really like what you have to say, right? So they become part of your tribe. Victims are people that you're bashing over the head with your message, you know, using HubSpot to hit someone nine times and say, I'm going to keep emailing you until you tell me to shut the hell up, right? You know, that's the sort of the abusive marketing that we see out there where people are just going after you. Instead, when you sort of look at sort of from the perspective of what do people actually need and what is the content that they they care about and literally the filter being if we were to go away tomorrow would anyone miss us if you think about it from that perspective that is today's content mix the idea of starting with the real value you can deliver to your audience and that's going to be different based on who your audience is and we could talk about some different examples if you'd like but the fact of the matter remains that when you understand who's the audience i'm really focused on and how do i deliver incredible value to them the marketing becomes that value as opposed to interrupting you from what you really want to be doing and trying to force you to listen to something you don't care about. So in other words, it sounds like you're advocating all brands should invest pretty heavily in content marketing, that that's the way that they can engage and in some cases from a sales standpoint, pre-qualify some members of their audience. I think for a number of brands, content marketing is going to be a strong support mechanism. But what I'm really saying is adding value to your tribe. Sometimes that's in the form of content. Sometimes it's something else. So for example, I think when you look at Zappos, they really aren't a content company. They're not doing a content machine. But what they really do is they understand the needs of their customers. And so if you think about what their really pivotal point and sort of they went from a struggling marketing company to a billion dollar company before they were bought by Amazon, the difference everybody points to is free shipping. But that's not what it was. And that was a transformational move, don't get me wrong. But the, the real transformation for Zappos was understanding the needs of their customer. They wanted to have conversations with real people talking about real problems. And so they completely flipped the model. In every other call center in the US, the number one objective is to get you off the phone. So as soon as you call in, I want to get you off, right? And so that they measure a successful call center by the, the few minutes you had to spend to get the customer off the phone. And so what Zappos did is they removed that. And they said, I don't care about any of that. My only metric success is, are you happier when you leave the call? 
So when you think about adding value to customers, it doesn't have to be always in the form of content. Yes, I think in many businesses that can, they can be supported by content. But if you think about what does your customer need from you? Sometimes it's content. Sometimes it's just being able to have people that will not try to rush you off the phone and actually engage with you, make you laugh, have a good time, and have a better impression of the company before they hang up the phone than when they called in in the first place. That whole excellent level of customer service really built the whole Sappos brand identity. Delivering happiness, right? That's the book, Delivering Happiness. And they, they really have focused on that obsessively, and it shows at every touch point. So it's not just a tactic, right? It's not just, oh, we put a bunch of content together. They're saying, what does our customer need from us, and how do we deliver it at the highest level? So now you spend a lot of your time speaking and, and of course, writing and uh, providing leadership coaching to a number of uh, individuals. What are some of the things that you emphasize in your coaching? So what I focus on in coaching is helping people understand exactly how to get over the hurdles of both their sales and marketing first and foremost, and then leadership inside of the organization. So when I look at leadership coaching, it's essentially how are you showing up for your team? And so, you know, if you are an executive and you're trying to continue your, your own personal growth path, your focus then is how can I basically in, invigorate my team? One of the things that Richard Branson said, well, it was the first person to say it, was that my employees are more important than my customers. And that was a very controversial move when he first uttered it. But I think most of the industry has gotten behind that statement because essentially if your own team aren't your best brand ambassadors and your best advocates for your company, you actually have a bigger problem than just trying to satisfy the needs of your customers. So from a leadership perspective, it's understanding your mission, your purpose, being clear about it, but then making sure that your own team is invigorated by that mission and purpose. From a marketing perspective, it's really thinking through how do I make this shift away from interruption techniques and focusing on how I add value specifically to my tribe, getting better definition of who your best customers are, understanding their needs, and delivering absolute value. To me, that's where businesses start to blow up and explode, right? Because when they really focus on not trying to serve everybody, but serving the customers that are most important to them and doing it at the highest level, adding that value, understanding the customer journey, where all the different put touch points, how do we make sure that we actually create advocates based on our actual best customers, that's where today's businesses are thriving. And so from a coaching perspective, it's I've, I've gotten out of the business for the last 25 years. I've been doing the heavy lifting and the work. Now what I'm doing is supporting the executive teams as well as the marketing department to support how they actually can deliver that value on a consistent day in and day out basis. So what does the future hold for TradePoint and also for Bill? So, you know, I, I will tell you that I'm just enjoying the process of public speaking, coaching, and writing. And, you know, for me, it has been one of the best experiences as I've moved out of the traditional, you know, agency model and moved into more of one where I'm supporting clients in a very different way. So I think, you know, for me, what I'm in, in really in excited by is I'm helping a lot of solopreneurs create million dollar businesses that are just one employee only. And I think if you think about that for a second, it's really exciting because what we find is that there are 26 million small businesses in the United States, according to the SBA, and 24 million of those businesses are quote unquote non-employee businesses, meaning they're one person businesses. So the vast majority of small business today is actually single person businesses. What I think is fascinating is with what we have today at our disposal, we can actually create seven figure businesses with one employee, basically yourself as a solopreneur. 
And so what I'm excited about is that next venture of helping from a coaching perspective, helping people realize that vision so that they don't have to have large teams, large organizations, you know, continue to have multiple offices, manage real estate. I mean, I know all the headaches that comes from having an agency because I've done two of these. And what I'm seeing now is this ability. How can you create a million dollar company with just one person? What are some of the ways that you advise those solopreneurs and um, how are the ways that they can find success in their business practices? Sure. So, I mean, whether it's a product or a service, it really starts with understanding your signature model. And signature model is really understanding specifically what is it that you do different and better than everybody else. And that seems like a very blasé question, and and so people kind of dismiss it. But really, it's where the gold is, because what ends up happening is when you try to follow the herd and you have herd mentality, you're always fighting for table scraps. If you look at sort of who has successfully built seven-figure businesses as, as a solopreneur, all of them come down to finding a niche, finding a hole and filling it, right? Figuring out what it is that's missing in this particular industry that they're so passionate about, and then figuring out exactly how they can deliver that at scale without having to hire a bunch of employees. Now, that doesn't mean you don't outsource. That doesn't mean you don't partner. Like, There's lots of things you need to do to basically make sure that you have the right resources to get there. But the idea is really understanding your signature system. What is your system? What is your process that allows you to scale to seven figures while maintaining that focus of adding amazing value to the audience you wish to serve? And with the growth of the gig economy, do you expect that there will be a continued rise in the number of solopreneurs? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing it now is basically when people are being let go from their current jobs and they're being disrupted, there's not this immediately back into the workforce that we had seen historically. Like we have low unemployment right now. I think we're like hovering below 4%. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, that's for people who are, you know, in the market to get a job. But we're not, what that doesn't account for is how many people have just completely gotten out of the market entirely and are now doing their own freelance gigs. So the interesting thing is in the gig economy, I think, you know, for people's own sanity, people enjoy working from home, they enjoy doing that work, it's really going to come down to if they can provide a right sort of amount of uh, financial resources for their family, if they can have health care, if they basically have a growth path that's going to continue to encourage them and, and help them grow, you're going to see more and more solopreneurs that are going from just just pure gig, gig, gig and freelance to actually building a business model that's going to allow them to create a huge amount of financial success over time as part of the one thing that they do better than everybody else. So I do think that that's going to be a continuous trend. And all we're seeing about the gig economy is it's just continuing to grow. There's no, uh, there's no indication that that's slowing down over the next five to 10 years. And what's coming next in the digital media space? If you had to make, say, three predictions, what would they be? So number one is artificial intelligence. I would say that what we have not seen is the full embrace of AI. We are starting to see it in certain industries. What's really fascinating and got me uh, excited is when you combine AI with robotics. And this is something that I'm going to be speaking about next month at the um, the AFP, uh, which is the Association for Financial Planners in Chicago. And what's interesting about this particular one is that when you combine artificial intelligence with robotics, magic starts to happen. Because AI, all it does is actually is, is create intelligence around decision making, but it doesn't actually make decisions. Robotics are actually taking the information from AI and doing something with it. So when you combine the two, you get exponential returns. And what we're seeing right now is that anything that you do that's mundane, anything you can put into a flowchart 
can be replicated by a combination of AI and robotics. And so, you know, you start to see some of this stuff take off. You you basically have a, you train your system by just having them just learn and watch what you do on a daily basis on your computer. And as soon as the AI and the, and the robotics can actually kick in, <laughs> you can do a subscription service that basically does all those same routine mundane tasks for you. And what ends up happening is for basically a little over $1,000 a month, you know, you can replace a lot of the administrative type work that has historically been extremely mundane. And it's going to challenge the industry to sort of go higher, to go after the human-to-human interaction. Anything that can be put on a flowchart and replicated is going to be redundant in the next three to five years. So if if you do a lot of pixel pushing in your job, that's not going to be a long-term strategy for you. You've got to go after sort of what's the vision for video, what's the vision for the next stage of what you want to do in your career. So to me, I'm huge on AI. I'm huge on robotics combined with AI. And then another thing that I think is really important is how all of this is going to come together with personalization. And so when you start to combine artificial intelligence with personalization, we're already seeing the early stages of this. But, you know, the Don Peppers and Rogers uh, one-to-one future was predicted back in 1995 is finally arrived. We're starting to see this where we can actually get down. We have enough data and we have enough insights. We have enough processing power. We can start to create really highly customized experiences. And that's what the expectation of the next generation is already there, right? Generation Z, not millennials, but Generation Z just expects people to know, like, I know you have my data. So if you have it, do something with it, do something meaningful. And so that expectation is driving a lot of what marketing will be tomorrow. Because a lot of times what they're going to say is if you have access to my information, don't just sell it to a third party and make money off it. I expect you to create personalized experiences that are going to actually make my life better. Yeah, I think we're already seeing that in personalized content recommendations. I think we're already seeing successful algorithmic recommendations, content curation in, in the music that we listen to and, and the, uh, the types of videos that we watch. So excited to see the boundaries of that be pushed even further as AI gets implemented into the personalization process. You know, and James, one thing that I want to offer up here too, to any of the, anyone in your audience has made it to this point in our interview, I want to give them a special gift. Is that okay? Yeah, please. So anybody who's made it to this point in the conversation in this podcast, if you go to billcarmody.com slash ATV or all things video, billcarmody.com slash ATV, I would like to give anyone listening a free one hour coaching session so that we can apply the very principles we've talked about in this podcast directly to your business. And so that way you can actually take great action and not have this be sort of an ethereal thing, but actually you take this information, put it right down to your business and take immediate action on it. I love it. Very cool. Well, I encourage people to to do that and spend some time with you thinking about ways that they can improve and grow their businesses. And since we have so many entrepreneurs who check out the, the podcast, Bill, you know, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, knowing everything you know and thinking about maybe the current white space in the landscape, what would you do? You know, if I were starting today, the number one thing that I would do is look at sort of who I could partner with so that I could access artificial intelligence more readily and build that into my business model. And what I mean by that is, is basically, you know, we've gone through the era of big data where people have access to a sea of data and a sea of information. But what's interesting now is how do we make sense of that information and, be, and apply it to digital marketing? 
So for me, that's where the AI intersection is. Uh, and if you think about sort of what does that look like, it's no matter what business you're in, if you're in the video business, if you're in the media business, if you're in you know the marketing automation business, I mean, any type of aspect of marketing today, I believe all of it is going to be impacted with artificial intelligence. And I think it's important that we learn how to leverage it because we're either going to be made redundant by artificial intelligence or we're going to rise above by leveraging it for our own uses and our own power. And so I feel like if I was going into business today, starting from scratch, I would begin with what are some of the AI tools that I could use in order to build my business more effectively? Terrific. I love it. Well, I encourage people to learn a little bit more and think about ways that they can harness some of the power of these new technologies for the businesses that they're working on or thinking about starting. And then the second thing I would also say is just regarding the actual non-technology side, it's what is your minimal viable audience? And I think that's really an interesting question that's been on my mind because, you know, when you get past minimal viable product makes sense, right? What do you need to do to launch a product that's minimum viable? But minimal viable audiences, how many customers do you actually need to be successful? It's a lot fewer than you think. And so what's interesting about that is if you could figure out specifically your niche, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. How many do you actually need to really be part of your tribe to be hugely successful? When you start to get really real with that number, you can start to say, well, great, I don't have to serve everybody. I can just serve these individuals that are going to really appreciate the things I do for them. And that becomes where your business starts to not just survive, but thrive. Terrific. Well, Bill, where can people find out more about you and more about the great work that you do? Yeah, I'm going to send everyone back to that same URL, billcarmody.com slash ATV. And if they go there, they can see my background, my coaching work, the public speaking that I do, and uh, the writing kind of work, all that stuff's on my website and uh, would love to support any of your audience members that would like some support. I love it. Well, Bill, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. It's been so fun to hear about your experience as a marketer and also, you know, building, running agencies, working with a number of brands to help them develop a successful strategy and, and, you know, move from the era of interrupt-driven advertising to this new world of social media, digital, uh, AI, some of these new technologies that are changing the way that we create and consume content and think about marketing as a practice. And thanks for sharing the work that you're doing as a, as a coach and a speaker and an author. It's incredibly powerful. It's a uh, great inspiration for a lot of the entrepreneurs out there. So I hope they'll take you up on your offer, check out your website, um, and make sure to, to find some time to get some coaching with you. Thank you, James. It's been an absolute pleasure being on your podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.